Our God, as we come before your word, help us to be humbled by this. And that as we see you as God, that we would really see your mercy in a way that helps us to come to you, to trust you, to really follow you. We know we need your help in this, so we ask that you would guide us by your spirit. Would you bring light to our minds and hearts now as we read and listen? And we ask these things then in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning we're hearing from Mark chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 46 through the end of the chapter. And they, the they there is Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Jerusalem. And as he was leaving, or came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out, all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. So this is the final healing in the Gospel of Mark. We know as we've been reading through the book of Mark, we saw a number of healings. In fact, almost too many healings, it felt like, earlier in the book, because at the beginning of Mark, Jesus is really establishing his power and authority. He's showing that he can do what he came to do. So he heals, he casts out demons, he's expressing then his power. Now, in the second half of Mark, Jesus is showing us what he's going to do with his authority. And so here in this text, he's approaching what we call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We know what that is. Usually it's around Easter time we celebrate it. It's the Sunday before, Palm Sunday, when kids wave uh, palm branches around and hit lots of people with them until their parents eventually take the palm branch away. That's the triumphal entry, and that's next week. That's the last week of Jesus's life. We're getting closer then and closer to the end. But here, we're in Jericho. It's the same as the Old Testament city that we're familiar with. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, same place. It was rebuilt um, in 1 Kings chapter 16 after it fell. This city was about 18 miles north of Jerusalem, so from here it's similar to Quincy, I think. Is that about right? No? Am I way off? How many miles is Quincy from here? 20 or so? Roughly the distance then. Okay, And at this time, 
there was a big holiday coming up. So similar to Hannibal's, I guess, 4th of July, when there's all the Tom Sawyer days and all the events and the hustle and bustle of all of that, they're coming up on Passover, which was a really big holiday in Jewish culture. So there's a lot of traffic then coming through Jericho. Many then are headed down on their way to Jerusalem for this event of Passover, but Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for a very different purpose. If you were here with us last week, you know and have heard, it's there in the text, you can read it if you weren't here, that Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom or as a payment on our behalf. That by his death, he would pay for the debt of our sin. That's the reason why he's headed to Jerusalem. And this journey for Jesus is so important that Luke, in combination with an Old, Old Testament piece in Isaiah, describes Jesus as having his face set like flint. I love that imagery. In other words, he's very determined. I think young kids are best at this. So who's the youngest here? You girls in the back, give me a really determined face. Oh, no, it got shy. Okay, that's all right. Uh, but we know, right, if you're a parent or even if you're not a parent, you've seen it best on kids because they're really good at expressing this. Their face gets all scrunched up, and you know they're not moving. They're not going to budge on the issue. They set their face like flint, and here we go. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem to be a ransom for many by his death and then eventual resurrection, has set his face like flint. And yet, here in Jericho, he pauses. And I want to know why. Why does Jesus stop on this most important mission. So, here we go. Uh, when we're going through the Gospels, we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are taking different angles, but they're looking at essentially the same thing. They're looking at Jesus' life, usually focusing on the latter years. Matthew, when he reports this event that Mark records here, describes two blind men being healed. That's in Matthew chapter 20. But there's not really a contradiction here. Mark only records one, the guy named Bartimaeus. So Mark's not saying that there weren't two men. He's just focusing on one in particular giving him particular attention and focus. And what's interesting about this particular scenario is it's the only time in the many healings in Mark in which Mark names the person who is healed. Usually it's just the woman who struggled with this, the man who couldn't walk, and we don't really know who they are. It's just a, a person. They're unnamed. But here we get his name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. The reason for that, I don't really know, but that would lead me to one of two conclusions. One, either Mark knew Bartimaeus personally, so as he's reporting this event, he could say, oh yeah, let me tell you what happened to Bartimaeus. Or, I think more likely, the original readers of Mark's gospel knew Bartimaeus personally. He's not just a random person that they could go, wait a minute, that guy? Wait, that was the blind guy here? That's the reason why I think he was specifically 
name. So if we ever struggle with this, as you know, various ebbs and flows of life, if we ever find ourselves doubting the validity then of the scripture, it's helpful for us to remember that many of these writings in the New Testament were circulating in the first generation after Jesus' death. And so they could ask people about the event, basically early fact-checking. You could go, hey, Bart, what was that like when Jesus healed you of your blindness? I love that, and that, that gives me a good amount of confidence then in this. Now, the naming of Bartimaeus is not the only unique part of this particular healing. The name or title that he uses for Jesus is also important. You see it because he says it twice in verses uh, 47 and 48. He says, Jesus, that's normal, we're used to hearing that, but Jesus, son of David. Now, we don't know how or why Bartimaeus chose to call Jesus this. In some sense, Jesus is the son of Joseph. Get out the, the nativity scene over Christmas time, and it's not Mary and David. It's Mary and Joseph, but in a broader sense. So he's not saying his dad is David, but he's saying that Jesus then is in the line or heritage of Jesus. And many say that. You'll notice next week we'll bump into this in chapter 11, verse 10. The crowds are shouting out, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father, David. Paul talks about this at the beginning of Romans. He says, the son Christ, who was descended from David, and then in 2 Timothy, he says, remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And then even Jesus himself, in some of his very last words in the scriptures, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, why does it matter so much that Jesus is the son of David? That's an important question for this, so we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament to really get the answer. We remember, we know, that David was the second king of Israel. We even know exactly when he reigned. Uh, 1010 to 970 BC, 40 years he reigned. He was the second king after King Saul, who was the first king over Israel. And at the time we're about to read, you can turn there if you want. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. At the time where we're reading here, David wants to build what he calls a house for the Lord. He's referencing a temple. So, in all the time that the people of Israel have been following the Lord, they had a tabernacle, not a building, a tent. It was a big tent, a pretty elaborate tent with all sorts of fancy things all attached to it. But it, it had to be mobile because the people were mobile. They wandered in the desert for many years, and they got into the promised land, and so they set up this tabernacle or tent where they would worship the Lord. And once they were in the promised land, now they've got, uh, they've settled in, people have kind of found their homes, and now they've got kings even in charge. And so David says, I want to build a house for the Lord, a building, a temple where we can worship God. 
And so he's set to do this, and he's interacting with the Lord about this. But the Lord then speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. My best friend growing up was named uh, David, so this was always fun to me that the prophet prophet Nathan really gives David the business all the time. But uh, this text then is the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan about this house. Hear this then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 8. The Lord says this, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Let me pause there for a moment. So basically the Lord's recounting his faithfulness to the people of Israel, the Jews, up until the time of David. And he said, listen, I've given you a place. I'm giving you rest. And I am going to actually establish a house for you. In other words, a people, not a building, but a people, a house of Israel. How is he going to do that? We'll keep going. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled... And you, David, lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here's then what the Lord is saying. I'm going to build a house for you, a people who is mine, who worships my name. And the way I'm going to do that, the way I'm going to establish and secure this house is through the throne of a particular king who's going to come from David. We hear about this all the time at Christmas, a particular piece in Isaiah chapter 9. This will sound familiar as soon as I read it. You'll go, oh, yeah, I know that, if I can get there. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and uphold it. I love those two words. Establish it, meaning I'm going to plant it and uphold it. I'm going to carry it forward. But this is going to go through then the line of David. Now, there's a degree to which this is true of David's son, Solomon. Solomon was the next in the line. After David died, his son Solomon became king. And there's a degree to which this discussion in 2 Samuel is true for him. That actually helps us to understand the rest of the text in 2 Samuel when the Lord talks about this son's iniquity and that the Lord would discipline him. But Solomon failed to establish the kingdom 
of God, at least in this full way. And so then, after Solomon, came his son, the king Rehoboam. And you can imagine that the people would go, maybe this is going to be the son of David who would establish the kingdom. And then he died, and his son Abiyam was raised up, and he failed to establish it. And then his, he died, and his son Asa was raised up, and then his son Jehoshaphat, and on and on and on. We have all of this recorded in history and in the scriptures, the kings over the years, until almost 500 years later, Judah was attacked by Babylon and taken into exile, and there were no more kings. And so you can imagine that the people who had been promised that there would be a king, a son of David, who would finally establish his people, now there's no more kings. A part of them might think God's promises have failed. We prayed and we prayed for this. We looked for this. We longed for this. We waited for this. And now we're in exile. Lord, your promises must have failed. Don't you get that? Have we not had seasons of that ourselves? Lord, you've promised this, and I know you're faithful, but here I am left waiting. And are your promises true? The story's not done. Because here we are now in Mark's gospel. And we've got a blind man sitting on the side of the road, now crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And you get a sense that there was a hope, or at least a glimmer, that maybe the king has finally come to establish his house. that finally, we'll see some of this next week, that there's going to be a king who will finally set right all the political power, that everything's going to be good again, that somehow now the Romans who are in control are going to be overthrown. And Jesus corrects this, or at least hones it just a little bit. He talks about this in chapter 12 in Mark, a little later on in verse 35. We'll talk about this in a second, but let me read the text. Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So here's basically what's happening here as Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's quoting Psalm 110. Probably see that in a footnote in your Bible. It probably has a little tiny number that says, oh, this comes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was written by King David. He says it at the beginning. And David wrote this, the Lord, that's God the Father, the Lord said to my Lord, which is his son, this coming king, sit at my right hand. So Jesus' argument here is this. He says, why would David call his son, this coming king, Lord. He's calling one of his future sons Lord, which, by the way, parents should not do this. Don't call your children Lord. We don't want to elevate our kids. We should honor, respect, appreciate our kids, cherish, love our kids, but don't 
call them Lord unless there's a situation like this? Because the implication here is that this coming son that David is calling him the son of David, he's more than just a man, he's more than just a political leader, and he is more than just another king. This son of David is the very son of God. That's why it matters that Jesus is the son of David. He is God in the flesh who has come to fulfill God's promise to establish his house. Now, there's Jesus, the son of David, and look at the contrast then in the text with this other man, Bartimaeus, who's described as the blind beggar. He's sitting on the roadside to Jericho, and he's a beggar, probably dirty, probably stinky. He's positioned himself in a strategically busy place, just like beggars in these days would do the same thing. If you see uh, people who, who are without homes, very often you see them most on the off-ramps of highways, you know, at the part where you get off the highway and you have to stop there. They want to get at the, the busiest spot because that's the place where they're most likely to actually receive some sort of help. So Bartimaeus would have done the same thing. He's going to find the busiest spot in Jericho on the road and plant himself there. And in the middle of all the hubbub, the busyness of the high holiday Passover as everyone's coming through. And now because it's Passover, we're bringing lambs and other animals. And, and so now we've got not only people talking and bustling, but animals clamoring over all of this and all of the noise. He hears from someone else that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, is here and he cries out. Over all the noise. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I would be embarrassed to do that. I would be ashamed. Because I don't want to cause, you know, trouble. But for whatever reason, Bartimaeus, maybe he was ashamed, but he cried out anyway. Even when they shushed him. <laughs> I love that line in there. Where is it exactly? They said, uh, they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. There's a parent move right there. Shh. And he cried out all the more, it said. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me because I need your kindness, because something here is wrong with me, and because I cannot make it on my own. Don't we get that? Don't we understand that experience? Now, we get to my favorite line in all this. After he cries out, we get to this in verse 49. Uh, Bartimaeus has just cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped. Hmm. Jesus is on this mission to Jerusalem to die in which he set his face like flint that's where he's going and no one's going to deter him from his mission and yet for a moment he hears this blind man crying out and Jesus stopped if this were a movie or a comedy piece you'd hear the record scratch you know you can almost kind of imagine that that like I don't know if it went silent in fact it probably didn't but here at least Jesus pauses now why does Jesus stop? 
the thing that stops this king, Jesus, the son of David, what calls his attention is a cry for mercy. It's not a display of lavish sacrifice. What calls his attention is not big, impressive buildings and temples. What calls his attention is not great power or great intelligence or great family job or resume. What calls Jesus' attention is great need. A cry for help. Have mercy, and he stops. And I love this, too. So Bartimaeus has been calling out with all of his guts, have mercy, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. So Bartimaeus has been calling, begging for this, and and now the tables turn, and Jesus is the one calling him. And you see the response of the people. They say, take heart, he heard you. And and, and then he gets up, and he he runs to Jesus, and and here's Jesus' question in verse 50. Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? If you were here with us last week, that's the exact same question that he asked James and John in in verse 36 earlier in the text. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And for them, they said, Jesus, we want to share in your glory. And Jesus' response to that is have to readjust or reframe what they mean by that. But here, when he says to Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And Jesus says, okay. I love that. That Christ had Mercy, and then Bartimaeus was healed and followed. Now, let's plow this right into our living rooms. You might be hearing me say all of this and look at this and go, Nathan, that's great. That's even beautiful on some level. That's even, that's even moving on some level. I'm so glad Jesus had mercy on Bartimaeus, but how can I know if Jesus will have mercy on me? Because you do not know what I have experienced, what I have done, what I have seen, where I have been. I am still a blind beggar. There are many who feel that way. Uh, One of my good uh, friends from Alaska wrote this poem about her personal life. I won't share her name, but I did um, ask her permission, and she gladly said, yes, please share this if you'd like. Um, It's very honest about her personal experience as, in some sense, a beggar. This is her poem. She writes this. Some mornings I wake up to a war inside my head. And suddenly my skin is raw like a peeling burn and my damage wants to eat me, wants to eat me, wants to kill me with noise and fire and flashbacks of bruises and funerals. So when I reach out and I'm rejected, it's more than a needle prick. It's a military assault on my heart. And I I wanna be loved, I do, I want to love, but some mornings I wake up shaking, remembering the sounds of ambulances. I smell the smell, I remember the smell of 
wine on her lips, only hours before when she spat in my face and told me that she should have aborted me before her clonopin and her Merlot, or was it a boxed wine, sent her into a seizure. Some morning my skin crawls and I want to tear it off, remembering how many violent men have touched it, kissed it, bruised it, apologized, lied, and promised, baby, I love you, I won't hurt you, not again and again and again again and again until my self-worth is the sum of a grain of salt, until the dirt can't come off, until every relationship I attempt is contaminated by all this trauma. Do you hear the ache there? Do you hear the cry for mercy there? On some level, her experience is unique. But on another level, we are not so different from this young woman. We've seen things, done things, been things. We are like her, even the greatest among us. Martin Luther wrote encyclopedias on Christian work, but in his last days, his final writings, just a handful of words, he said this, which is in German and Latin, wir sind bettler hoc est verum, which means we are beggars. That's the truth. It's the last words of a great Christian thinker. We're beggars. That's the truth. In my guts, I think I know that's true. But then if this is really true, how can I know the mercy of the son of David? As we wrap up here, let me just give us three very practical pieces and ways that we can know the mercy of the son of David. One, do not give up crying out to Jesus for mercy. Don't let yourself be shushed. Don't let the noise distract you. Don't be halted by your shame or think you are bothering him. And when the crowd is loud and it may be long, the cries out to mercy for Jesus. And when my voice is hoarse and dry from crying out, then ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for you with groanings that words cannot express. Do not give up crying out to Jesus for mercy. That's one. Two, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. When he, when he says, call Bartimaeus to me, you could see his excitement in this. In verse 50, he throws off his cloak even. I wonder if he had much underneath there. He's a beggar after all. But he throws off his cloak and splits right toward Jesus. And when life is rough and we're tempted to think that Jesus 
does not care. We are tempted to run elsewhere other than Jesus. We binge on things like TV and pornography and food and work even to find some level of comfort. And some things that we go to or even have some measure of good or help that we go to counselors and trusted friends and those are good things. But ultimately we know that we need Jesus. So come to him for mercy and for help. That's two, come to Jesus. So do not give up crying out to Christ for mercy. Two, come to Jesus. And then three, here's the last one. And you're looking at it right in front of you. It's the table of the Lord. Here's what I mean by that. What we're seeing here is not magic, but it's the real spiritual presence of Jesus. We remember that in the Old Testament, in the first Passover, that the Jews were in slavery in Egypt, and they cried out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, and the Lord brought mercy through plagues. And the last of those plagues on the Egyptians was that he would take the lives of their firstborn. And so the way the Jews then would protect their families is they were told to kill a lamb, to bring a, a good one, one without a, a flaw or a blemish, to kill the lamb, put its blood on their doorpost outside the door, and then to eat a meal of that lamb that night. And then when the Lord came and saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over them and in mercy spare that family. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our sacrifice. It's his blood on the doorpost instead of the blood of animals or even instead of our own blood. And so he gives us then this Passover meal, this new Passover meal, the blood of the covenant, which is a meal of mercy. And it's to remind us together as the house of the people of God of his covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. So now we'll eat of it together. Would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that there is nothing in ourselves that is deserving of mercy. And so even when we cry out for mercy and we lay everything at your feet, we don't have any right to claim that mercy, and yet you are incredibly kind and gracious toward us. And your mercy toward us is rich and deep and high and wide because you are that kind of God. Thank you for your great sacrifice on our behalf, and we come to you again for mercy. We give you all thanks then and all praise, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.